This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. The Tennis Gambling Podcast and the Sports Gambling Podcast are now presented by Circuit Sports. Circuit Sports is back with their Circuit Survivor and Circuit Millions contests. $14 million up for grabs. Get all the details at circuitsports.com. And welcome, everybody, to the Tennis Gambling Podcast here on the Sports Gambling Podcast. So now it is currently Friday night, July 14th. And I'm your host, as always, Scott Rochelle, once again, going solo for this pod. Should be a fun one, but a short one, because we only have one match to go through in this episode. Going to go through the women's final taking place on Saturday. Then, of course, we'll be back once again for the men's final on Sunday. We'll be doing that podcast tomorrow. Alcaraz Djokovic should be a lot of fun. Looking forward to it. Hopefully the cramping doesn't come back for Alcaraz, but either way, we'll talk about that match in more detail in the next episode. But for the sake of this episode, once again, we're going to only talk about one match and we're also going to recap uh, what happened in our lock and dog picks before that, obviously, and then do cover some news. But I'm not going to give you full breakdowns of the semifinal action on the men's side from Thursday, uh, from Friday. I'm going to save all that for the next podcast because I feel like that'll flow better. So the plan is to do the lock and dog picks, just a recap from the last episode. Then I'll do some news and some overall takeaways from the women's semifinal matches. And then I'll go through the preview before doing the lock and dog picks for that women's semi. But time to get into the actual housekeeping once again. Got to start off with the lock and dog picks from the last episode. Overall, not bad. Could have been a lot better, but still not bad. Ended up winning the lock with Alcaraz minus one and a half sets. I saw that close at around minus 130, and it got there easily. Alcaraz won in straight sets. Once again, I'm not going to go that much in depth with the analysis, because I'm going to save that for the men's final. But simply put, I just thought Alcaraz was a bad matchup, and Medvedev stands so far back on the court, really is a bit stubborn, doesn't make many adjustments. You might have noticed that, too, with the more you watch Medvedev. And Alcaraz really just had an easy go of it comparing service games. He was all over Medvedev service games. Medvedev really didn't threaten much. And as a result, Alcaraz won in straight sets. As for the dog pick, we went for the home run play, took center first set and Djokovic to win the match at plus 550. No regrets there. We took a minus 500 favorite, give or take, and turned it into plus 550. Just didn't work out. I didn't think center was that bad. In the first set, it was really just a story for every set that Sinner just kept hitting unforced errors and kept blowing every big opportunity that he had. And the first set was no example. It started out immediately because Djokovic was serving first, couldn't buy a first serve in the first service game or two, and Sinner gets two break points in the first game. So you're assuming, okay, good start, get an early break. Maybe Djokovic is sleepwalking a little bit, and you can get off to a good start. Sinner blew the two break points, happens, whatever. And then immediately went down 30-40 in the first service game. And then, of course, Djokovic breaks in the first possible break point. And then Sinner's down a break immediately when he could have easily been up a break. But anyway, after that, Sinner did have another break point at 1-3. Could not convert again. That was the story of the match. That was some foreshadowing because Sinner went 0-6 for on break points in the entire match. Didn't break Djokovic one time. Had a bunch of chances, but could not keep the ball in play. Either way, no regrets. Once again, we expected Djokovic to win, but we thought that maybe he'd get off to a slow start. And 
in a way, kind of did because he really was not serving well early in the first set. Then he woke up and he ended up serving, I believe, three or four aces in the closeout game of the first set. But Sinner was hanging in there, and you go through the actual stats of the first set, it was pretty even. Uh, you're looking at Sinner's numbers in the first set serving-wise, and his numbers are basically identical to Djokovic's. So in the first set, Sinner won 67% of his first serve points. Djokovic won 68. Uh, Sinner won 75% of his second serve points. Joker won 67. And Sinner had three breakpoint chances while Djokovic only had one, and he lost the set 6-3. So I know Djokovic, at the end of the day, is going to perform his best in high-pressure moments where Sinner does not... I have a pretty decent center rant. I'm not sure if I should do it now or save it for the men's final, but I have a separate rant I'll get into actually for Wimbledon itself in a second. But for the sake of the center match against Djokovic, he was handed a bunch of opportunities. He had two set points in the third set, and he blew all of them, but I'll save that once again for later. But for the sake of our bet, Sinner had some chances early, couldn't convert, and then Djokovic eventually was solid enough on some big points, especially with the serve, to close out the first set. So went one and one. No regrets, though, once again. Trying to get a $5 favorite at plus 500 or 550. So it happens. Picked up a loss. But at least Alcaraz got the job done. So anyway, uh, that's going to do it for the actual recap. Now I get to transition over to my brief rant, which is going to be based on really Wimbledon again. And... It's mostly involving the tournament organizers, which I've made several roasts about so far this season, so far this tournament, mostly involving the curfew and the actual uh, lack of lighting on the outdoor courts because of darkness. But this is actually going to be a little bit different. And I do think it's very important to mention the court quality is something that I need to bring up because I understand that center court is very busy. You have the women's matches, you have the men's matches, the men were off on a Thursday, but the women played some semis. I get it. You have a lot, a lot of usage on that court. Having said that, the court is a disaster. And I understand that you're trying to play it on grass, yet you have dirt patches all over the baseline. I get some of the big reason for that is because that's where the players stand. And the more you stand there and run around, you're going to knock some grass off. But Sinner's slipping all over the place the entire match. And Djokovic is slipping, too. I noticed he was having some pretty serious footing issues at times as the match went on. And I know, once again, it is grass, so it's going to be naturally slip, uh, more slippery than the other surfaces, clay and hardcore. But still, I have to at least point out that for a semifinal, the court quality really in both semifinal matches was atrocious. And I just have to bring it up because I know Wimbledon is regarded as being such a phenomenal venue and how it's regarded as being one of the best tournaments in tennis. Some people think it's the best. I mentioned this before with the curfew and everything, but I feel like we got to talk about Wimbledon losing some of its luster over the last couple of years. I think Wimbledon kind of sucks. I, I just want to bring it up. And no, it's not because Djokovic and Federer and Sampras have won pretty much all the Wimbledons for the last 20 years. That's not why. I, I don't care if you have the same players winning. It happens. You know, the French Open had Nadal win for about 20 years. But the point is, I feel like the overall tournament organizers do such a bad job of basic match preparation and basic tournament preparation that I have to at least call them out for it. And I feel like Wimbledon is kind of coasting based on its reputation, but they've really just done a crappy job when it comes to the preparation for this year's event, especially. And 
yes, I understand the lighting stuff. That's not one person's fault at the actual venue. That's the overall tournament organizers having to spend money to invest in improving the tournament in the future. The curfew is, is a Wimbledon thing, which is also really, really stupid. But for the sake of the grass, I know it's difficult because once again, you're playing a lot of matches on that court, but you have to do a better job of trying to, to keep the court in solid condition, even bringing in some extra grass if you need to, maybe trying to replace something. I'm not saying fully artificial turf, but I think you need something to at least make the grass either look better or at least play better. Because with the grass they were showing in, or they were playing on in the semifinal matches was kind of inexcusable. And Sinner was constantly yelling at his shoes. Now, some of it could be because of the fact that you know, maybe Sinner just didn't bring the right equipment, but then again, he's also in a semi, so whatever shoes he was using apparently were working early on, and his shoes did look pretty old. Slipping's going to happen on grass, I'm aware of that, but all the dirt patches and everything there, it just does not look good. Just simply put, and I once again, I know it's easier said than done, but Wimbledon, for a Grand Slam that is so prestigious and that is held in such high regard because of historical tradition and the royal family being there, etc. It's been a really underwhelming tournament from an X's and O's perspective, and I wanted to bring it up. Now, luckily for us, the matchups have actually still been good because you have had the top players all advancing, and I believe the favorite in every quarter of the men's side won the quarter and made it to the semis because Sinner was favored, Alcaraz was favored, Djokovic was favored, and Medvedev was favored. So yeah, all the favorites won. It was chalk, but that's not the point. The point is, is that even though the matchups are still fun and you still get a lot of great overall shot making, etc., I got to at least point out that it really does not look like they put much effort into the upkeep of the court, and I wanted to call them out for it. On top of that, there was a pretty funny anecdote that I wanted to mention once again, talking about the pretentiousness potentially of Wimbledon and the complete uh, just idiocy of the tournament organizers. So I'm sure a lot of people know this. If you are a tennis fan for a long time or a historian, uh, you might be aware of the McEnroe and Borg rivalry that they used to have back then. And you had the legendary tiebreaker that happened there. And that was a long time ago, a long time ago. Of course, McEnroe is now working for ESPN and BBC, and he's doing a bunch of tennis broadcasts. Borg kind of went off the radar because he kind of went bankrupt, and there were some concerns about his health I'm not going to get too far into. But the point is, Borg was apparently at the venue on Friday, and at least I believe it was on Friday. McEnroe told the story, but I wasn't sure if it was from this Wimbledon or it was from a past Wimbledon. But anyway, McEnroe said a story that he was with Borg and they wanted to rally a little bit, you know, just for old time's sake, I guess. And they asked Wimbledon, the organizers, if they could have some rallies on center court. Now, I am aware that on one hand, I just roasted the grass's quality. So the last thing you want to do is let two players not playing in tournament to potentially mess up the grass even more. I can understand that, you know, whatever. Having said that, it's McEnroe and Borg. It's one of the greatest grass court rivalries of all time in tennis. You might want to make an exception. It's one thing if you don't want to put them on center court. Okay, you have a couple other main courts. Throw them on there. They're being used for what? Doubles? Like, come on. Like, you can throw them on one of these secondary courts there that are still under a roof and that are still in held in some high regard. What if I told you that McEnroe and Borg wanted to play on center court and the Wimbledon tournament officials 
instead of giving them center court or one of the other main courts, offered them court six. They got offered court six. You know how disrespectful that is to two of the biggest, uh, I'd say most famous grass court players in tennis history. And it just seems so out of touch. I understand, once again, if you don't want to put them on center court because you want to preserve whatever you have left of the grass there, but court six, damn, man. Like, that's just so wrong on so many levels. And I wanted to bring it up. Now, I'm assuming McEnroe is telling the truth. Nobody asked him about it. He just volunteered that story during the broadcast. And I'm happy he did because I think it kind of sums up perfectly in a short anecdote of how clueless the actual tournament officials are and why I think Wimbledon is probably the most overrated Grand Slam event out of all of them. But anyway, wanted to mention that. I thought the McEnroe story was interesting and kind of pathetic, but I at least wanted to bring it up because of how absurd it is. And it's something that you'd assume was a lie if you if somebody told you that story and you didn't actually realize McEnroe told the story himself because it sounds that outlandish. But either way, point is... The tournament officials at Wimbledon are really, really bad at their jobs, and I think Wimbledon is the worst of all the four Grand Slams. Anyway, that's going to do it for the actual recap of the picks, as well as some of the news stories that happened over the last day or two. Now it's time to get into the actual uh, recap of the women's semifinal matches that took place on Thursday. I did this briefly because, once again, we had the lock and dog picks from the from one of the earlier episodes on the semifinal matches. So obviously we talked about a little bit of those two matches, but for the sake of going through it one more time, you had Vondrasova, who was able to beat Svitolina as a slight favorite at around minus 137. Simply put, Svitolina couldn't serve the entire match. She landed 73% of her first serve points and only won 48% of her first serve points. Vondrasova was returning so well and Svitolina really couldn't do anything. Uh, she got broken six times, and yeah, it just wasn't a good time for Svitolina. She made a good run, but Vandrasova's returning has really been a story of this tournament, and she's been really good at limiting aces, at forcing her opponents into a lot of high-pressure situations in their service games, and most of the time, they have blinked, and Vandrasova's capitalized. But for the sake of that matchup, uh, Vandrasova kind of buried her. Really not much more to add. Match did not take long, took an hour and 15, pretty straightforward. Then for the second match of the women's semifinal, you ended up having Jabor taking on Sabalenka, which was, of course, the main event for the Thursday card. And for that matchup, Sabalenka was a favorite, and it looked pretty good early on. Of course, I mentioned this in the last episode as we had uh, Sabalenka minus one and a half games, and unfortunately, she choked the entire match away. But Sabalenka needed to win two more matches to be the number one player in the world, and she was up a set and a break. She was up 4-2 in the second set, and on top of it being 4-2, it was 4-3, and she had two game points. So she was one point away from being one game away from advancing to the Wimbledon final, and then she fell apart. She ended up losing the final four games of the second set, and then ended up going down a break at 2-3, and Jabor held it out and ended up winning the match, uh, final set 6-3 in the end. Sabalenka, I got to talk about briefly because I know she was able to win the Australian Open and congrats to her for winning a Grand Slam title. It's not easy. She's a pretty bad choker and we're going to have to talk about this moving forward because it's really rough when you choke that badly in the French Open semi where you're against a player you should beat in Mukova and then you just completely fell apart. 
I forgot the exact number. She lost, well, like 17 of the last 21 points in that match. She completely fell apart. And you're thinking, okay, you know, it happens. It's a one-off. She won a title. It's fine. And then she chokes again in Wimbledon. It wasn't as bad as the Mukova choke. The Mukova one's an all-timer. But still, the point is, Sabalenka, for being the number two ranked player in the world, is really bad in clutch moments, and I wanted to at least bring it up. Now, of course, it takes two to tango. If Sabalenka is going to choke, that means Jabor has to do her part to make the comeback, and she did. So Jabor props to her. She did a great job. But I want to at least point out that Sabalenka, for an elite player, a part of a big three that should be dominating women's tennis for the next decade, she is really bad in some big matches, especially when she has leads, and I wanted to bring it up. It's a good thing she won the Australian Open because if she did not, it would be a huge conversation about how she's probably the biggest choker on tour and how she can never win the biggest match. She's going to be able to avoid that type of discord, uh, discourse, I mean, for a while because you're looking at uh, the fact that she does have a title and the fact that she was on the cusp of being the number one player in the world. But I got to at least bring it up because besides the Australian Open, she's been really bad in some big matches with leads. And I do think that when you're looking at how to evaluate these players, Swiatek, I know, lost in Wimbledon. She's also not a good grass court player. But you're talking about a player who we know has risen to the occasion most of the time. Rabakina uh, ended up winning the Wimbledon final. She's had some big moments as well. But it does seem like in terms of mental toughness, I think that's why Swiatek's number one. I think Swiatek's just mentally tougher than Sabalenka. And I do think that's why currently Sabalenka is unable to get over that hump and why she's stuck in the number two spot. Now, Rabakina and Sabalenka, you can argue, might be neck and neck in terms of mental toughness because I'd probably argue Sabalenka is better at it. But then again, I'd probably argue uh, Rabakina might be better at it. But Sabalenka beat her in a three-set war in the Australian Open, which might be a tiebreaker uh, just based on how you want to evaluate those three players in terms of mental game but Sabalenka is, is clearly behind Swiatek, as far as I'm concerned, with the mental edge. And I think that's why Swiatek is viewed as being a little bit above the other two. It's somewhat close, but I do think when you're looking at evaluating all three players, I have Swiatek one, I have Sabalenka two, and Rabakina basically being 2B. But I think there's a, I don't want to say a large gap, but a decent gap between Swiatek and the other two. But anyway, uh, time to talk about the player that actually won that match, Jabor, because she ended up once again rallying, and she's had a couple of moments in the last few rounds where things looked a little bit grim, and she was able to come back, lost the first set to Rabakina, for example, and then ended up losing the first set to Sabalenka. Really the exact same situation. Lost the first set 7-6, and then ended up having... Some moments where it looked like it could get away from her. Now, it wasn't as serious in the Rabakana match because, as a whole, the second set was pretty straightforward. Rabakana did have three breakpoint chances at 2 2, but Jabor also had three breakpoint chances at 1 1 and couldn't, sorry, at 1 0 and couldn't convert. So the point is, it seemed like the second set was more straightforward in that match. And then uh, you ended up seeing Rabakana kind of fall apart there in the third set. But Sabalenka was up a break in the second, and then everything fell apart. And that's kind of the difference between those two matches, which is why I think the mental toughness discussion needs to be brought up with more criticism towards Sabalenka, at least in this case. But Jabor, once again, beating Sabalenka and beating Rabakana in Wimbledon is extremely impressive. And I have to at least bring it up because... 
you're beating two of the big three. That's impressive. So uh, Jabor, once again, massive favorite for this matchup. And now we'll transition over into the odds. Uh, Jabor is minus 225. Vandrasova is plus 195. The spread is three and a half games or two and a half if you want to pay some juice. Two and a half is minus 135. Uh, towards Jabor and plus two and a half is plus 105. Uh, Jabor minus three and a half games is plus 105. Vondrasova is minus 125 for the plus three and a half. Over under is 21 and a half. 20 and a half is minus 150 to the over, so I'm going to skip that. But 21 and a half is minus 115. The under is minus 105. If you want an alt line, 22 and a half is plus 110 for the over. The under is minus 140. Match to go to three sets is a plus 135. So, for starters, I got to go through the head-to-head like we always do. And recently, surprisingly, they've actually faced off a decent amount so far this season. And that kind of shocked me because I couldn't recall any of those matches. But Vondrasova's had some success against Jabor in the past. And to go through the actual results from this year, they faced off in Indian Wells and Vondrasova beat her in straight sets. Competitive, though, 7-6-6-4. They faced off in the Australian Open this year, which I do not remember. And Vondrasova won that one in three 6-1-5-7-6-1. So the two matches this year, both on hard court, but Vondrasova's done well, and she's won both matches. They faced off on clay in 2022. Jabor won that one in three. They have one grass match in their careers. They faced off on grass in Eastbourne back in 2021, and Jabor won that one 6-3-7-6. Does it mean much? Not really. I mean, Jabor's best service is definitely grass, so that is a factor. But that was also roughly two years ago, so I'm not sure if that matters. But for the sake of this overall matchup, I wanted to at least bring up the fact that Vondrasova's had success against Jabor over the past year, or I should say past couple months, because she is 2-0 against Jabor so far in 2023. But for the sake of this overall match, I mentioned some of the pathway for Jabor, beating the likes of Rabakina and beating Sabalenka. To go through the other players that she has beaten so far in this event, once again, very difficult path, and she's passed the flying colors. She ended up beating Kvitova, in straight sets. Gavita was playing some good tennis, too. She's a good grass court player. Beat Andrescu. Uh, Bianca is, once again, a former uh, U.S. Open champion, but she's a bit of a head case, and we know that she's still very talented, a lot of firepower, so I have to at least bring up the fact that beating her is impressive, but once again, that's another former Grand Slam champion that she beat, so that is impressive to win four straight matches against top-tier players, and and once again, she passed with flying colors. She also was able to beat a couple of lower-ranked opponents in the first two rounds in straight sets. So Jabor has looked very, very good. Now, as for Vondrasova, she's looked good, too. Uh, to mention her actual matches here, faced off against Fidelina, obviously, won that one in straight sets. Beat Pagula, which is a nice win over a top-ten opponent in three. Beat Buskova, lost the first set, but came back and won. Faced off against Vekic, won that one, and then beat a couple other lower-ranked players in the first two rounds in straight sets. The point is, even though she did make a final, and beating Svitolina, uh, beating Pagula is a good win. Like, don't get me wrong, Pagula is a good grass court player, and Pagula is currently ranked within the top five. That's a very nice win. Svitolina was a top 10 player, seems to be regaining form, but it's tough to evaluate how impressive that win actually is, since she's still ranked relatively uh, high. And Svitolina also did a lot of the dirty work for Vondrasova uh, because of the fact that Svitolina upset a lot of players who were highly ranked and that Vondrasova might have had to beat in a deep run. And instead, Vondrasova got to match up against a Cinderella story with Svitolina. Now, once again, not trying to fully disrespect Svitolina because I know how good she is, but it definitely was beneficial 
for Vondrasova that Svitolina did beat up on a lot of the higher ranked players uh, in their section. But either way, point is to go through the actual odds here. I agree with Jabor being favored, especially as the defending runner-up. And I do think that Jabor is going to win. I think that she has taken it personally to finally get over the hump after being so close yet so far last year. And I do think when you're looking at how these players match up, even though Vondrasova has been good against Jabor this season, grass is completely different than hardcourt. And I do think that Jabor is easily the more comfortable player on grass. Now, I'm not saying that Vondrasova was going to get run out of the building. That's not what I'm saying. I think it's going to be a war. But I think that last year, we saw Jabor losing three to Rabakana. I see this going three, but I do think that Jabor is going to win. Is she going to lose the first set? Maybe, because she's lost the first two. Se- she lost the first set in each of the last two matches. Then again, that was against two of the top three players in the world on the women's side. So maybe you'll see Jabor come back again. Maybe not. But it's the fact that Jabor has shown so much resolve in this event, which gives me faith that she will be willing to go down swinging. And I am a bit concerned that if Vondrasova, in the biggest match of her career, goes down early... Am I sure she's not going to mentally crack? No, I'm not. But I think that Jabor is not going to crack. That I can pretty much guarantee you. And I do think that's going to be the edge for me. It's the fact that I know Jabor's mentally tough. And I know that she can handle this moment because she's been here last year. And she has some unfinished business. So for me, I think Jabor is going to win. The problem is trying to find value. Because Jabor with the games... I can understand why you'd want to take the games or lay it with Jabor because you think she's going to win. Having said that, once again, she's gone to three sets in each of the last couple of matches. So it's not exactly, you know, ideal that you're going to be laying games when she might drop another set and suddenly you're up against it. On the other hand, or I should also add, I don't exactly want to lay games because Vondra Soba's had success against Jabor so far in 2023. My favorite play in this match is going to be the over. I think you're going to see a decent amount of games regardless of who wins because even the matches that we saw on hard court, they ended up going over. The Australian Open match went to three sets. The match in Indian Wells ended up going to a tie break with a 6-4 attached to it. So you have seen a decent amount of long matches when these two get together, and I do think that's going to be the case once again. Now, I think eventually Jabor is going to wear her down, but I think this could get there in a variety of ways. I think either you see a couple of close sets and maybe a straight set win, or maybe you're looking at a spot where you end up getting another three-set war, and with that being the case, that goes over pretty much automatically. But I do think when you're looking at this match in itself, the over is my favorite play because I think that you're going to see a very, very tough battle between these players that are currently tied 3-3 in the head-to-head. So for the sake of my favorite play, I like the over. I like over 21 and a half games. If you want to get 22 and a half at plus 110, I wouldn't really mind it, but I do like having the 6376 in my back pocket just in case you get unlucky with who serves first. But I do think th- at uh, 21 and a half is a good number. I'm going to take that for the over. As for the other plays, I like the over in sets at two and a half, especially at plus 135. I think that's a very good price, and I am going to recommend that as well. Uh, for the other prop stuff, I really don't see much. The aces, I'm not sure about. For the breaks of serve, I would consider Vondrasova over two and a half breaks of serve because she has been returning very well, and pretty much nobody can ace her. So it does seem like Vondrasova 
gets a lot of returns in play. And that's going to, of course, increase your chances of getting a break. And it might be a bit of a marathon match as well. So that might be worth a look at minus 115. I don't have much else, though. Not really a strong play on the breaks. They are just giving a slight uh, lean in that direction. But once again, I'm expecting a very, very fun, entertaining, and close match. But I do think at the end of it, Jabor will win the championship. And I do think she will finally be able to avenge her really difficult Wimbledon final loss last year. She already avenged it by beating Rabakina, but now she can fully complete the cir- complete the cycle by actually lifting the trophy by the end of it. So anyway, that's my thoughts on the women's final. Now it's time to get into the actual lock and dog picks on this one match. But before we do that, I can have a quick word from our sponsor. We're also brought to you by Circus Sports. Circa Millions and Circa Survivor are back. $14 million in guaranteed prizes up for grabs. Circa Millions is pretty simple. Five NFL picks against the spread each week. There's a leaderboard, and depending on how well you do, you can make yourself some serious money. On top of that, Circa Survivor is a different but fun way to get in on the NFL action. Pick a different Moneyline winner each week. You cannot use, once again, the same team twice, and whoever's the last team standing or last person standing ends up winning the grand prize, or if multiple Multiple people do make it to the end of the season, then you chop whatever the grand prize is. And on top of that, you can enter in Vegas, but play from anywhere using a proxy. And SportsCam Podcast will be out there last weekend in August. So stop by and say hi to the gang. CircusSports.com for all the details. CircusSports.com. What would you do if you ended up winning all that money? Possibilities are endless. I'd probably go on vacation. I'd travel a lot, maybe buy a ticket to the Super Bowl. We'd see, but the point is it would be a lot of fun to, of course, get in on the action by winning. And for me, the picks that I'll look at for Survivor, there's a lot of potential options. Once again, the season's so far out there. I would fade the Cardinals, just simply put, with Kyler being on the shelf, and we know Arizona's got the lowest win total of any team. I'd probably just fade the Cardinals, play it safe. There's different philosophies when it comes to Survivor, where some people try to save the best teams for last. Others try to just get the best teams out of the way because you have more faith in them. I'm more of an option B guy. I'd rather just try to survive as long as possible and worry about the planning after. But I do think taking the commanders in the first game at home against the Cardinals is worth a look because the Cardinals should be a mess. So that would be my thoughts for the week one of Survivor. But once again, get in on the action at Circus Sports, CircusSports.com for all of the details. We're also brought to you by Underdog Fantasy. Best Ball Mania 4 is here, and Underdog Fantasy is giving away $15 million in prizes. Underdog Pick'em is also another great way to get down your favorite MLB and college baseball player props. So many ways to win over at Underdog, and it's active in so many states. Head over to UnderdogFantasy.com. Use the promo code SGPN for a 100% deposit bonus up to $100. It's UnderdogFantasy.com. Promo code SGPN. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. 
Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tennis Gambling Podcast. Just finished previewing the women's final in Wimbledon taking place on Saturday. Now it's time for the lock and dog picks for the show. Starting off with the lock for the show, I think you know where I'm going with this one because it was the main play that I was interested in. It's going to be the over at 21 and a half games at minus 115. Simply put, I just see a very competitive battle between these two players, and I think that Jabor, once again, even though she has been winning against good competition, she's had a couple of really, really competitive matches where she's been up against it, and I do think that you might end up seeing another one of those matches where both players are going to be very, very close on the scoreboard, and because of that, it's going to go over in games. Now, you can make an argument that maybe you see Jabor fully take advantage of the opportunity and maybe the moment's too big for Vondrasova. I'm not sure about that. I just think that you're going to see a very fun and close match. You've seen Jabor go to three sets in three of her last four matches, including each of the last two matches. You're looking at Vondrasova, though. She did beat Svitolina in straight sets. Went to three sets, though, against Pagula. Went to three sets against Vondrasova. The point is she has been, sorry, against uh, Buskova. The point is she has gone to three sets in two of her last three matches. So both players are no strangers to going into some uh, deep water, so to speak. And I do think that when you're looking at how these players match up against each other, you're going to see a very competitive matchup. So give me the over 21 and a half games as my lock. For my dog, I can go with the over two and a half sets at plus 135. Having said that, I do think it's a little bit too close to the over 21 and a half games. So it seems like a borderline double down play. And I can see a world where Jabor wins in straight sets with a tiebreaker in it. So I do think I'm going to stay away from taking the over two and a half sets as my dog. I still like it. But once again, I'd rather take the games in this case. As for my dog, though, I know it lost yesterday, but I think I got to go back to it because there's a prop that I found that I think has an insane amount of, of just value on it. And yes, I know it lost in the Sinner and Djokovic match, but just hear me out. It's going to be Vondrasova to win the first set and Jabor to win the match. So Jabor to come back from a set down, plus 750. You turn a minus 220 favorite into plus 750 for Jabor to lose the first set when she has lost the first set in each of her last two matches. I think there's value on it. We've seen Jabor have a, a couple of really, really tough first sets where she just can't win the tiebreak. Vondrasova's 2-0 in the head-to-head so far this year, and I do think that she might end up being able to get out to an early lead. And on top of those two matches, by the way, Jabor also lost the first set to Andrescu. So she has lost the first set in three of her last four matches and just come back to win each time. So the fact that Jabor can do what she's been doing in order to actually get to this point and if she does it again, it's plus 750. I love the value. Now, would I be shocked if Jabor won the first set and won the match? No. Would I be shocked if Andrasova won the match? Shocked is not the right word, but I'm not expecting her to win the match. The point is, I'm trying to find some extra value taking a minus 210 favorite, and you're saving roughly $9. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take the flyer, give me Jabor to lose the first set and win the match at plus 750 on DraftKings. So once again, the lock and dog for the show. The lock is going to be the over 21 and a half games and minus 115. And the dog will be Vondrasova to win the first set and Jabor to win the match 
at plus 750 on DraftKings. That's going to wrap it up for this episode. We're back once again for the men's final taking place on Sunday. We'll do the show on Saturday, though, obviously. Find me on Twitter at Rice Show Radio. Find me on the NBA show, the MLB show. Find me on the WNBA show as well, the NFL show. A lot of podcasts. You get the point. Until next time, good luck to all of you and all of your bets. Bye, everyone.